I was about 17 when I was attending a mega church here in town. By all standards, not only was it mega church, it was one of the few large, very large, charismatic, full gospel churches. I lived with four of the roommates in an apartment. One weekend, we all drove up to the mountains. I think there were three cars between us, at least two. Coming back, one of our roommates went alone in his vehicle. We weren't together. As he was coming through the Eisenhower Tunnel, if my memory serves me right, there was a failure in the vehicle. It filled with carbon monoxide, and he passed out, and the vehicle crashed. He didn't lose his life, but there was severe injury. Help me out a little bit on the microphone. I'm a little boomy for me. If we could bring that down a little bit. The response of the church leadership as people were praying and we were walking this out was to sit down with each one of us who were roommates of this gentleman and interrogate us. That's the only word for it. It was an interrogation. And it went basically like this. What sin do you have in your life that opened the door for this accident to happen to your roommate? Clearly there's something going on in at least one of your lives, and we're going to find out. This is the idea of God that I grew up with. This was the fear that I lived under when it came to church leadership. You know, many things people believe about God and their identity are lies. We believe these lies because we are told the Bible says it, and it doesn't. In part two of our series today, we're going to address the question, was the cross a place of punishment required by God's wrath so people could be forgiven and go to heaven. I submit to you that if God used the cross to punish Jesus for our sin, then the God of the Bible is simply another in the list of ancient gods known in antiquity and not the loving, merciful Father revealed by Jesus. You know, to listen to some people in how they relate to God, how they relate to their church, to the things that are taught, to church leadership and circumstances that they've had in their life, like the one I just related to you. It's almost as if John 3.16 says, For God so hated the world that he killed his only begotten Son, rather than for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. I'm going to borrow heavily in this message and in the next one, part three, from this book. We're going to display the cover for you. 
It's called A More Christ-Like God. It's by Bradley Jerzak. And here's what Eugene Peterson, famous pastor, megachurch, author, writer, speaker, and great demand, and you might recognize his name in relationship to the translation, The Message Bible. He wrote that. He translated The Message Translation. He said regarding Brad's book, Atonement theology like nothing I've ever come across. Magnificent. Why is this subject so important? Because number one, it sways everything you believe about God. Number two, it biases you towards other human beings. And number three, your views will either prejudice you as intolerant and bigoted or create in you a Christ-like acceptance of forgiveness and love. Our text is taken from the book of Romans, chapter 8. Now, how's that for a heavy beginning, huh? How's that for just kind of laying it, laying it on you? But this message is so important. What I'm about to share with you has so changed my life and radically turned it upside down that I can't help but tell it. Yes. <laughs> yes, and thank you. My daughter, who is sitting out here in the... Uh, audience this morning uh, said, um, and, and clearly it was your fault, the, the crash. Out, out of all the group that were, uh, out of all the group that were interrogated in this accident, clearly it was my fault. Well, I certainly felt like it. Now imagine a, a group of five teenagers living in an apartment all together, and they're being interrogated as to whether there's any open doors to sin. Well, hello. <laughs> Which one do you want to pick? Romans chapter 8, verse 3 and 4. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. Watch this. I've highlighted it. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And to deal with sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. We're being told why Jesus came. We're being told the purpose of the cross. So that the just requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. And then a companion passage that I'll deal with more next week. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14 and 15. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death, read it out loud, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death. Who's that? The devil. And free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. We must deal with this idea of the wrath of God. It is present in Scripture. We can't erase it. We can't sweep it under the carpet. Any exegesis of the Bible... Any honest look and exegesis of the Bible has to deal with the subject of the wrath of God. But the wrath of God can only be understood in the light of the cruciform love of God. Now, let's go there, okay? Let, let, let's go to some of that Old Testament passage that certainly seems to say God has a dark side and a wrathful side as well as a good and a loving side. Is that true? Does God have a dark, wrathful side as well as a loving, good side? 
You see, it's so puzzling as you look through the Old Covenant or the Old Testament scriptures, especially in the book of Lamentations. I'm going to give you from chapter 2 alone of the book of Lamentations just a verb review of the first 11 verses. Watch this, verse 1. The Lord in his anger has brought Jerusalem to shame. He has thrown down. He did not remember. Verse 2. The Lord destroyed mercilessly, mercilessly, mercilessly all the homes. You get it. And his anger, in his anger, he pulled down, he threw down. Verse 3. In his anger, he is removed. He took away. He burned against. He burned up. Verse 4. Like an enemy, he prepared to shoot. Like an enemy, he killed. He poured out his anger. Verse 5. Like an enemy, he swallowed up. He destroyed. He caused mourning and groaning. Verse 6. He cut down his temple. He destroyed. He rejected in his great anger. Verse 7. He rejected. He abandoned. He handed over. Verse 8. The Lord planned to destroy. He measured the wall to destroy. He made the walls sad. Verse 9. He destroyed the bars and smashed the gates. Verse 17. The Lord has done what he planned. He kept his word that he commanded. He destroyed without mercy. He let your enemies laugh at you. He strengthened your enemies. Now we've gone on. Verse 17, 20, 21, and 22. Verse 22. Lord, Lord, see to whom you have done this. Women eat their babies. Verse 21, you killed them in the day of your anger. You killed them without mercy. And verse 22, you invited terrors to come. No one escaped alive on the day of the Lord's anger. And watch this one. Chapter 4, verse 10, with their own hands, compassionate women have cooked their own children who became their food when my people were destroyed. Repulsive, right? Gruesome events attributed to God. And then what's so puzzling, what's so, what's so crazy about this, what's so dark and yet puzzling, and, and I don't understand what I'm reading, is that we read all of that, these gruesome, repulsive events, and then in chapter 3, verse 22 and 23, it says this. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. It's imperative that we understand the biblical language of wrath. Brad Jerzak in his book says, quote, The Bible itself takes us on a progressive, cruciform pilgrimage from primitive, literal understandings of wrath, where God appears to burn with anger and react violently, to a metaphorical reading of wrath in which God consents, gives us over to the self-destructive consequences of our own willful defiance. The cruciform God will not and cannot, by love's nature, coerce us to obey. God grants us the dignity and the discomfort of finding our own bottom. See, it's God's consent that is his wrath. Our willful defiance is destructive and has consequences. Paul spoke of this in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, verse 24, verse 26, and verse 28. See if you recall some of this. 
For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who watch suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Verse 24. Therefore God gave them over to the lusts of their hearts to impurity. Verse 26. For this reason God gave them over to degrading passions. Verse 28. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. See, there's a point at which it's not a matter of God's wrath. It's a matter of His uh, his cruciform love. He will not force us. He has to remove His hands. He has to just pull back and say, if you're going to will that, then I have to allow you to do that. His loving nature will never pressure us to obey. A cruciform God grants us the dignity and the discomfort to find our bottom. And some people have to find their bottom before they can return to the light of God's love and life. God's love is a constant way forward. But it also allows for the reality of sin's cruelty without painting God as a moral monster. So there's metaphorical content in the Scripture. You cannot read the Bible without understanding and, and segmenting and, and doing the due diligence to understand what parts of it are metaphorical, what parts are law, what parts are poems, what parts are songs, what parts are history, what parts are prophetic. It's not one thing. It's not just the Word of God and every Scripture passage has equal weight and authority without understanding the context of it. There's great metaphors throughout the Scripture. And any time the Old Testament in particular, but any time the Scripture in totality is referring to the wrath of God, it is referring to it metaphorically with an end in mind. And how do I know that? Because God is good and God is loving and God is like Christ. We're going to talk about that more in a moment. So metaphors are the critical component in understanding the wrath of God. Brad says in his book, quote, If God operates in the world by consent, then we see wrath not as the retribution of a willful God, but as a metaphor for the consequences of God's consent to our non-consent. That is, God's wrath, the metaphor, is that which he allows us to resist. He allows us to resist him. And it includes our experience of all the fallout that ensues. When we understand the way consent relates to wrath, we can use the language of cruciform consent. Cruciform consent to demortify mortimize or metaphormize wrath. A fancy word for transposing a metaphor back to what it's actually describing. We don't need to deny the metaphor, even the metaphor of wrath. Instead, we ask what real-time reality is the metaphor pointing to. Wrath is a metaphor, and it's passive. God's wrath consents to permit He doesn't spare consequences. He allows forces to take their course. So, in the Bible, where we see or hear of God's wrath, 
What we're actually witnessing is God's nonviolent, cruciform consent, the painful results of God's letting us have our own way. Wrath is a metaphor for the intrinsic consequences of our refusal to live outside or to live in the mercies of God. But see, our dilemma is this. Our misguided biases about how God is present when there is wrath. Let me give you an example. How about the prodigal son? It's a story that most people know to some measure, in some way, they've heard of the prodigal son. Let's rehearse it real quick and see if you can identify God's cruciform consent. So the father consents to the son's stubborn defiance and sinful recklessness. In love, the father lets him leave and he gives him over to the wrath of whatever sin that the son's going to experience. Then when the son bottoms out, he wakes up and he goes home. And when he consents to the father's way, the father welcomes him home with great joy and without shame. And the party resumes the story of the prodigal. Now, was God actively being wrathful in judging the son? Was the father exhibiting his wrath in bringing judgment to the son? Or was the son simply experiencing the wrath that's out there as the conclusion of our willfulness? And God's love and God's wrath is actually one and very much the same. It's God's cruciform love, his cruciform consent, because he will not force you. How do we explain God's participation in tragic circumstances? How do we explain God's participation in tragic consequences? We should do it like this. John's Gospel, chapter 14, verse 9. Do you not know me, Philip? Even after I have been among you for such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus said, if you look at me, if you've seen me, you're seeing the Father. The Father's not a different being. He's not a different person. He doesn't act differently than I act. If you're seeing me, you're seeing the Father. Well, how can that be? Because we read how that God wiped out whole, whole, whole nations of people. God commanded it, that whole groups of people, women and children, be wiped out. Yes, that was wrath being exhibited, but it wasn't God's wrath. It was the wrath of sin and the wrath of willfulness. And yet God, in his mercy and love, he enters into covenant and he takes the blame for it. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. He is the radiant and flawless mirror expression of the person of God, speaking of Jesus. Brian Zahn said it this way, God is like Jesus. God has always been like Jesus. There's never been a time when God was not like Jesus. We've not always known this and not always known what God was like, but now we do. I love that. So right, so good. The problem that many people make in interpreting the Scripture is they start with the Old Testament and they move forward instead of starting with Jesus and going backward. We start with the lens of Jesus. We don't start with the Old Testament. We don't start with any scripture and look at it 
through any other lens than the Lord Jesus Christ. So how are we to understand the cross then? The cross was the single greatest expression of God himself, the unveiling of his character, his nature, and his love for humankind. In our text, Romans chapter 8, let's look again, verses 3 and 4. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Notice, sin and death has its own law. But God has another law. It's the law of the Spirit. It's the law of his cruciform love. And it sets us free from the law of sin and death. Verse 3, For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. What did he do? How did he do it? By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and to deal with sin, he condemned sin in the flesh so that the just requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk, not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. There's two questions here. How did the incarnation of God, the Son, condemn sin in Jesus' flesh? And number two, how was the incarnation of God, the Son, an offering for sin? You see, with Paul, the apostle, and the early church fathers, such as Arrhenius, Athanasius, Gregory of Nicaea, they regarded sin not simply as law-breaking behavior in need of punishment. They saw it ra rather as a fatal human disease. Think the serpent's bite. Am I far off? The serpent's bite? Yeah. How did sin enter? We're talking about a fatal disease here. We're not talking about just moral failure that's needing punishment. We're talking about a condition that entered into humankind. Romans chapter 7, verse 20. But if I do what I don't want to do, I am not really the one doing wrong. It is sin that's living in me that does it, Paul said. It's a disease. It's, you don't punish people that are sick. Do we punish people that are sick? Of course not. Well, what do we do with people that are ill or sick? We get them to the doctor. We take them to the hospital. Why? Because they've got something going on inside of them beyond their control. And they're going to have to be set free of it. Enter the incarnation. Now, when we use that word, incarnation, I know a big theological term. What are we talking about? God becoming flesh. That's incarnation. Say it out loud. God becoming flesh. How did God become flesh? Someone? One word. How did God become flesh? Jesus. Yes. God became flesh. And the virus called sin was annihilated in Christ when he assumed a human body. John chapter 1, the word became flesh. It's the Greek word sarx. It refers not only to Christ becoming human, but to the divine word uniting the deity of God with human flesh, the flesh of humanity. Mary, the mother, gave birth to God in flesh. And so human flesh got united with the divine and Christ drove that virus. The law of sin and death was conquered by the law of life.
and love. The incarnation, which is the hopostatic or hoopostatic union, destroyed the virus of sin in Christ's human nature. The fatal and incurable virus that we all carry was eradicated in two steps. Number one, first, he exposed this sin virus to the glory of his divine nature and he utterly wiped it out. Hebrews chapter 2, it was in our text. We'll deal with it more next week. Secondly, he offered his life to undo sin's fatal effects by entering death and returning in his own resurrection. By virtue of Christ's union with human nature, all human nature, by the way, not just a human nature, he heals human nature. We've been to the hospital. We've been to divine God's, emerg- God's divine emergency ward. Watch this. Jesus took on human nature in order to restore the likeness of the divine nature in humankind. This has nothing to do with punishment and everything to do with the exchange that happens in our union with the God-man. We, we could call this the vicarious exchange rather than penal substitution. Penal substitution is one of several primary atonement theories and it is the predominant one in Western evangelicalism here in America. And it drives people's view of God. It drives their worship. It drives their interpretation of Scripture. It even drives interpreters to interpret Scripture in certain ways and write down certain things that actually aren't even in the Scripture or to characterize God in Scripture in certain ways because of this belief in penal substitution. Listen to me. The belief that God in His wrath punished Jesus on the cross for my sins so I could be forgiven. Penal substitution. There was no penal substitution. There was a vicarious exchange. (laughs) The Word became flesh. God in Christ became flesh. And He wiped out the virus. So Paul says in our text, Romans chapter 8, verse 2 and 3, that God condemned sin in the flesh. How? Vicarious exchange. Now listen to me. It's so important, this point here. Listen. This is not instead of us. It's as us. Jesus did not hang on the cross instead of me. That's what I learned. Jesus went to the cross instead of me. I deserve the wrath of God. So Jesus stepped in. He stepped into the middle of an angry God, a a retributive God who had to have his vengeance, and God killed Jesus on the cross murdered him with my sin. I deserve to be there. No, 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 no. That's penal substitution. It is not instead of us, this vicarious exchange. It is as us. Jesus was us. I was in him when he died. I was in him when he was put in the ground. I was in him when he rose from the dead. 
I have life in God because God is a gracious, loving, good God. And everything we see about the wrath of God is outside of his nature. It's best understood by cruciform consent, not God's anger being taken out as punishment. Okay, we got to wrap up. Watch this. Forgiveness did not require the cross or bloodletting. You'll see this in the book of Hosea. The whole point of this prophetic book of Hosea is exactly this, that God is utterly free to forgive sinners, to show mercy to the guilty. He's able to respond to legal demands for punishment with a counter-verdict and completely pardon based on his own grace and mercy and nothing else. And he did it in the book of Hosea. Watch this. Here's a couple of more scriptures. Psalm 51, verse 16 and 17. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. God, you will not despise. God did not require the sacrifice of Jesus. There was no bloodletting to appease God. Psalm 103.10, He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. John chapter 3, verse 16. Read it aloud. You know it by heart. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Come on. That whosoever believes in him out loud shall not perish but will have. And we stop there and we never read verse 17. Look at it. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And so my favorite verse now. I live by this verse. This has become my, my anchor in all of life. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 through 19, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. The cross was for the purpose of a vicarious exchange to put the virus of sin to death, to condemn it in the very body of God on the cross. There was no penal substitution. There was no wrath of God. There was no forgiveness going on on the cross required by Jesus being punished. God forgives us in his mercy. God forgives us in his love. And aren't you glad there was this vicarious exchange? Jesus wiped out sin's virus. Whew. Well, I done preached myself happy. All right.